you ask the average person what they think about the devil and you'll get a range of opinions from, oh, he's a seedy little creature with horns and a tail and he goes around jabbing people with his pitchfork to he's an omnipresent creature who is everywhere at all times causing even heaven to shudder about the future of the world. Both extremes are wrong. I fear in our day we perhaps give him too much or too little due. C.S. Lewis, the author of the tales of Narnia, and maybe you've read them, wonderful little books, Mere Christianity, another good work of his, other excellent works, wrote an insightful little book entitled The Screwtape Letters, a little lesser known, but fascinating, in which he imagines a series of letters from an experienced demon named Screwtape that he writes to his nephew, a lesser experienced demon, whose job is to keep his new patient, which is the word used in this uh, illustration for an unbeliever that this demon is to keep from hearing the truth of the gospel. In this uh, fascinating little work, uh, Lewis makes clear his underlying belief that the average person does not take the demonic world seriously enough. In one particular letter, Uncle Screwtape writes to his nephew that it would be best to keep the patient ignorant of our existence. Keep alive, Screwtape wrote, the modern imagination that demons are comical figures in red tights. So the liberal scholars and academic circles view the biblical exposure of the fallen demonic world as so much make believe. Vance Havner, a famous evangelist from the last century, said this, he put it this way, if the devil came to town in a body, you would not find him in a nightclub or casino. You'd most likely find him in some pulpit drawing a salary while denying his existence. And that's so true. In fact, I read of one such minister is preaching that the word in, I-N, didn't necessarily mean inside. It meant close to, roundabout, or nearby. He went on to say then, of course, that the Bible that said that Jonah went in, was in the stomach of the great fish, it simply meant he was close to, roundabout, or nearby. After the service, a man came up to him and said, you know, that was the most comforting message he'd ever heard in his life. It cleared up so many difficult things that he had a hard time believing, like when the three Hebrew children were thrown in the fiery furnace. We now know, of course, they were just nearby. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, he was just close by, nearby. He wasn't in it. And then the man went on to say, the most encouraging thing about your explanation of in is that even though I don't believe the gospel, if I'm wrong, I won't actually be in hell. I'll just be close to, nearby, or roundabout. <laughs> Uncle Screwtape would say, now you've got it. That's right. As John the Apostle reveals to us the faces of evil... In Revelation chapters 12, 13, and 14, the rather politically incorrect, certainly religiously avoided topic of the reality of this individual, he is revealed to us as the predominant, literal, 
personal, living, breathing, evil, murderous being that he is. He is not dressed in red with horns and a tail with a pitchfork. When you compare scripture with scripture, you discover that Satan is the highest created angel who fell sometime prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, he's there to tempt them, so he fell sometime before the creation of Adam and Eve. He has spent now thousands of years dividing his time between two primary activities. First, he is unceasing in his attempts to hinder God's purposes and plans on the earth, and of course, along with that, the worship of God. Secondly, he is untiring in his attempts to harm the believer's secure position in heaven. So in other words, he seeks to hinder God's sovereignty on earth, and he seeks to harm the believer's security in heaven. Now theologically, Satan is already defeated. In fact, the believer is already, in the mind of God, seated in the heavenlies in Christ, Ephesians 2.6. But practically, Satan is roaming the earth, seeking, primarily in this context, a believer to devour, literally to discredit. He cannot have your soul, but he will take your testimony and your joy. Even though he has been defeated, Jesus Christ, in fact, calls him the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. Paul calls him the prince of of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Theologically, the believer is sinless before God. The blood of Christ has wiped the record of sin clean away. In fact, Paul told the Colossian believers that their certificate of debt, all of the debt of their sin was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. That's theological, that's finished truth. But then there's the practical application of theological truth, which happens to be our daily challenge. The believer can walk in the lusts of his flesh. That's one of the reasons Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to stop living in the sensuality and deception and corruption of your former lusts. Put them away. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. The believer can move to the sidelines and get out of the battle. That's why Paul told the Corinthians to be steadfast, be unmovable. And then he reminds them, your toil in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. The believer can fall prey to delusion, to temptation, and to sin, which is one of the reasons Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray, deliver us from what? The evil one. You can render it evil. Matthew six thirteen. Wait a second, though. We, we've already been delivered. That's theological truth. But we need the practical application of that deliverance daily and forgiveness along with it. If we were beyond the potential of division or devious behavior or distraction, we wouldn't have been taught to pray for deliverance from evil and the evil one. Yes, Satan was defeated at the cross, but his sentence has not yet been carried out. He's like a guilty criminal who has to appear in court for sentencing, but in the meantime, he's out on bail. He's free to roam around. That's the biblical picture of Satan. 
He's guilty. He's defeated. He's facing his sentencing. But in the meantime, he's been given delegated freedom to roam about, which he does, relentlessly continuing to fight his losing battle against God and God's people until he is temporarily incarcerated in the abyss, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, and then later on permanently incarcerated in hell, Revelation 20, verse 10. That that is not close by, near or roundabout, that is in hell. Which means, by the way, that Satan is not now in hell. In fact, he's never been in hell. He will one day be sentenced before the great judge of the universe who will render him guilty and deserving of hell forever. And by the way, when Satan is cast into hell after the final battle, following the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20, he will not become the keeper of hell. He will not be the manager of hell running around terrifying everybody to make their stay even worse. No, he will be hell's chief prisoner receiving the maximum punishment of God forever and without end. The one who deceived the world, who attempted to hinder the purpose of God and the glory of God, who incited blasphemy against Christ among the unbeliever, He will pay forever and every day his influence over the unbelieving world grows and so does his terrible guilt. Just this past week I was behind a a car with several bumper stickers. It's my mission in life to read every one of them. (laughs) So I got as close as I could because it was an older car and some of the bumper stickers were as tattered as the car. One of them caught my attention because of the last few words, and I focused on the first few words, which seemed to be scratched out a bit as if someone was trying to remove its message. And you will understand why. Finally, just as it was turning away from the direction I was headed, I leaned forward enough to catch the words, and just as it drove away, it registered to me what it was saying. He died in A.D. 33. Now get over it. Can't imagine the horror of such blasphemy and the tragedy of such unbelief. The tragedy of such unbelief. The face behind that evil is pictured in Revelation chapter 12 for us. Let's go back there where we're provided in a few verses a condensed view of redemptive history. Let's kind of prime the pump. He pictures the woman, you remember, who represents Israel as a persecuted, suffering woman giving birth to a male son. Verse 5, male son. The redundancy of that is intentional. It's a term indicating the legal right of the firstborn to sit upon the throne. He pictures the birth of this child, obviously Christ, the heir to David's throne, having the legal right to rule. Born of this woman, Jewish of Jewish kin. John also pictures for us with figurative language a dragon, just as he did with figurative language this woman. How do we know he's speaking figuratively? Well, he uses the word semion or sign, a sign in heaven. That means this is a symbolic personification of someone or something. So you have the sign of the woman. Verse 1, a symbol of Israel. And you have the sign of the dragon, verse 3, representing the worldwide empire of Satan in these 
final days. And you notice, again in verse 4, that the dragon is standing before the woman, waiting to devour him as soon as he's born. Waiting to destroy this legal heir to the throne of David. In verse 5, we're very quickly, we're told that the child is safely delivered and then taken up to God the Father. And so here you have the most condensed summary of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ anywhere in the Bible. Again, John's intention here in this chapter is not to fill in the details, but to give us an overview of Satan's efforts and the evil ones who will do his bidding throughout world history, certainly in the latter days. So we're told that Satan has hunted the Jewish people since the nation was promised that one of their own descendants would be the Messiah. That's verses 1 and 2. We're told that Satan has manipulated the world empires. There have been six of them. The seventh is yet to come to thwart the efforts of God on earth. That's verse 3. We're informed that he will create a ten-nation confederacy, a reference to the ten horns. Daniel informs us these are ten kings to fight against God, ultimately to fight against Israel. We're reminded that Satan fell from heaven with many angels, verse 4. We're given the inside look at his attempt to kill the Messiah, verse 4. And we're told he failed to destroy the Messiah who ultimately rose back to heaven, that's verse 5. And finally, we're told in verse 6 that he will unleash a, a unique period of persecution that will last for literally three and a half years against the mother of the child, that is literally the nation, Israel. Notice we're told in verse 6 that the dragon redirects his anger and terror toward this woman who flees then into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God where she would be nourished for 1,260 days, literally three and a half years. In that we can be certain then that this woman isn't the church or Mary, the mother of Christ, because of this clear language. She runs to a place where she's kept away from the serpent for three and a half years. Certainly Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to avoid the decree of Herod to kill the male children from the age of two and under. But according to Matthew 2, their their flight to Egypt lasted, and it would only last a few months. That is, until Herod's death. The church, some believe it would be the church, it's certainly been hounded and hunted by the dragon, but the church is not running away. It, it It isn't running away and now protected for three and a half years. Not at all. We're in the midst of the battle. Now it's lasted for some 2,000 years ever since the day the church was created on the day of Pentecost. Look down at verse 13 for even more clarity. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that She could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's Daniel's phraseology for three and a half years where she is going to be protected, nourished, uniquely, supernaturally, like Elijah by the brook was nourished. Now we'll look at this flight to safety in our next session. You can't go that fast here, okay? Now as chapter 12 opens, the apostle John describes for us the faces and the forces of evil behind this global rebellion against God during the tribulation. And not surprisingly, then, the primary face, uh, which is foremost, is 
This one John refers to in verse 3 as the red dragon. Again, that's a reference that refers to his bloodlust. He's a murderer. He's a killer. He loves to shed blood. In verse 9, he's called another thing. Let's look at some of these phrases used for him. He's called the serpent of old. That's a reference to his crafty, uh, deceitful ways. He's a snake. It's one of my favorite titles for him, by the way. The serpent of old or the old serpent. The word old is the word archaeos, which gives us our word archaic. Nobody likes to be told they're getting old. Certainly archaic. And that's exactly what John does here. In fact, you go to the first book of the Bible and you hear him referred to as simply the serpent, Genesis 3. And now you come to the last book of the Bible and he's called the old serpent. The archaic snake. Martin Luther is probably right when he says that Satan who loves to be in longs to be worshipped is infuriated by being jeered at and he cannot bear scorn. Here in this text, John seems to do just that when he calls him nothing more than an archaic snake. Later in verse 9, he's called the devil. You could perhaps circle some of these references and other words as you take your time with me in the text. This is a translation from the Greek word diabolo. It simply means to defame, to slander. It carries the idea of one who separates by means of his whispering or slandering. Certainly one of the devil's primary objectives is to so slander God before the believer so as to separate the believer from the confidence of God's love and redemption. He constantly defames the character and integrity and trustworthiness of God before the believer to ultimately rob God of the faithful worship of his children. We just happen to be pawns. He wishes to move in his ultimate hatred against God. He certainly is busy. He defames, he divides the church as well. I'm convinced the devil most often doesn't try to destroy the church outright. Most often he just joins it. And then he encourages division and happily provides ammunition for both sides. That's why one of the most devastating challenges a church faces, according to the New Testament, is never from the outside, but from the inside. That was Paul's warning to the Ephesian church, warning them of those who would rise up in the assembly, who would harm and hurt the flock. They don't care about the sheep, they only cared about themselves, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. So one of the chief aims is found in this term, devil. It's to deceive and divide the church, thus destroying her unity and her effectiveness in the gospel. Another name you notice in verse 9, attributed by John to this slanderer, is, is simply the term Satan. It's a, it's a Hebrew word, transliterated. Satan is the Hebrew word, Satan. It simply means adversary or opposer. These are all references to who he is and what he does. Finally, verse 10, we'll look at one more. He's called the accuser. That word often appears for him, and we'll come back to it in a moment. But for now, this title implies a rather chilling intention of our chief enemy. The word literally means to bring a legal charge against another. We're told in verse 10, look there, that Satan accuses the brethren, 
before God day and night. He must be an amazing prosecutor. He brings legal accusation before God about you and me. And listen, he does so on legitimate grounds. He has legitimate accusation. Daily we offer Satan more evidence to make a case against us. And he goes before God and and effectively he says, surely you you will reject them now. Uh, Surely that sinful, disobedient, wayward, self-centered man or woman, you'll be done with them. He just is unceasing in his accusation against us. But he will not succeed. Paul wrote to the Ephesians of their security and ours in Christ. He says, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge that is literally a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Charles Wesley wrote it well, and we sing it often when he said it this way, No condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, that is, clothed in his righteousness. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. The accuser will not succeed. God will lose none of his. No one can pluck us from his hand. We have already received the down payment of our inheritance. Now, much to our surprise, at least to mine, John reveals to us that a future battle is going to take place in heaven. And now you need to follow this carefully. This is taking place within the context of the great tribulation. It's possible to overlook, in fact, I think this is, Probably one of the most overlooked battles in the book of Revelation. And yet its implications are so exciting. Look at verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now before we move to the end result of this battle, we've just been introduced to another angel, haven't we? He's evidently the general in this war with the captain, uh, maybe the captain of the Lord's hosts who wages war against Satan. His name, we're told, is Michael. By the way, I got to push pause for a moment. I find it fascinating that God named his angels. We've already learned there's at least 300, 400 million of them. You had trouble naming your three kids. Right? Imagine this. You remember the conversation. Maybe some of you are in them right now. I know 40, 50 babies are born every year that then populate that nursery. And so that means a lot of people in here are probably going through this, you know, naming. What goes well with what? Maybe you went to Walmart and got the book, 200 names that, you know, that sound good or have great meanings or whatever. What family member maybe do you honor? What rhymes with your last name? 
what sounds good, you know? My mother named three of her sons with middle names that all started with the letter D. Dwayne, Dale, and Dean. Three Ds, which looked a lot like my report card as a kid growing up. <laughs> I wish she'd given me an A for middle name. Then a guy came in and said, well, that would have been sad because had you been given a middle name A, your initials would be S-A-D. <laughs> he obviously wasn't listening to me preach. Imagine, though, the, the obvious concern and care and the nature of our God revealed in the naming of his angels. Now, we're told in verse 7 that Michael was at war with the dragon. That's Satan. So angels and demons are involved in this skirmish. Verse 8, here's the end result. They were not strong enough. The demons were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now let's ask and answer two very critical questions. First, who is Michael exactly? And secondly, when did this battle take place? First, who is Michael? Well, the name is simply the Hebrew word Michael, which means who is like God. It's a great name, great meaning. The first time we, we encounter Michael is in the Old Testament book of Daniel. He's called the great prince. And he specifically seems to have been given the role of protecting the Jewish people as God so allows and commands. We're told in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel has been praying. He's been praying for insight into the revelation that we've been studying now for some time. And he's asking God for help. He hasn't been able to sleep. He hasn't been able to eat. He's so troubled by this. And he's gone now three weeks without eating or sleeping. And after three weeks of praying, Daniel is visited by the archangel Gabriel, who informs him, look, I would have been here three weeks ago, but I was held up by the prince, the demonic, this individual, the prince of Persia. Let me just read what Gabriel says for the sake of time. I'll read it. Do not be afraid, Daniel, Gabriel says, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, three weeks. Then behold, Michael... One of the chief princes, or probably archangels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. In other words, I was outnumbered. Now I have come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And you think, wow, that's an interesting text. We'd really like a few chapters on this whole idea. We're not given much. What we do know is that for 21 days, the demon, simply known as the one working in the kingdom of Persia, intercepted Gabriel and started this invisible tug of war. And God eventually sent another angel, Michael, and that was all that was necessary to release Gabriel and send him on his way to Daniel. We're not told any more than that. In fact, you better be careful not to make too much more of this than what is delivered, or you end up going off a cliff with all sorts of fanciful views of of these wars or battles. However, even though this is a study all on its own, which isn't our present purpose, 
it's almost unfair to read a text like this without giving some kind of explanation or some observations. So, since we've already put the pause button on and I haven't left it off yet, let's give four observations about this text. Number one, conflict between angels and demons is a reality. We're not told much about it. We're, we're not, you know, what kind of weapons they use, what they're doing. Do they throw each other from one planet to the next? You know, we, our imaginations could run wild. Uh, we're just not told. But we do know that it's a reality. Second of all, demons make a habit of losing. They just lose. Either immediately or later on. Third, this battle involved two angels one demon, but it did not include Daniel. And that's where you have to be really careful you understand that observation. It did not include Daniel. Don't miss the fact God never asked Daniel to pray for more angels. It's wonderful fiction, it's not reality. In fact, he didn't even give Daniel a sense that an angel needed assistance, or that one was on the way, or that angels were even part of this. Furthermore, God did not have Daniel identifying this demon by name so he could somehow bind him and then release Gabriel. God did not require Daniel to be involved in any part of this battle scene. And even though Daniel was a godly, faithful prayer warrior, Daniel didn't even know about the conflict until it was what? Until it was over. Daniel 10 is in no way suggesting that Christians need to start binding territorial demons, praying down more angels, casting demons out of everything. Nowhere in God's word are we even told to command demons to do anything, to give up certainly any territory before we can influence neighborhoods, cities, or even foreign countries. I know of people who now simply pray around the world, forget about missionaries, forget about the gospel, forget about language school, just pray that territorial demon down. And that'll do it. And Satan must wring his hands with delight at that misapplication of Scripture. Frankly, many people today would rather pray for 30 minutes against some demonic stronghold than spend three hours preparing, studying to teach a class. How boring is that? It's not nearly as exciting. It's a lot more exciting to walk around the neighborhood casting down the demon of your subdivision, if you can come up with the name of your demon, and do all of that rather than prepare and pull off a vacation Bible school for your neighborhood kids. And ladies and gentlemen, our clear commission from Jesus Christ is not to go out and bind demons, but to go out and make what? Disciples. Matthew 28, 19. In fact, we're never told to pray for more angels. We have been commanded to pray for more laborers. Matthew 9, 38. However, at the same time, To me, it's rather thrilling to know that there is an invisible war going on and God is sovereign and God is in control and the demons lose. That there is ultimately this battle behind the battle that we do see. A warfare that influences and incites and manipulates and we ought to look at things understanding full well the force of evil behind the evil we see. 
what Paul meant when he said our battle ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In fact, that's why we understand the battle behind even our own temptations. And we pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. One more final observation here would be this. Satan has organized his demonic forces to hinder, to hamper the advancement of God's plan. Ultimately, they lose. Now this kind of exposition or observation might make you feel a little smaller in the cosmic scheme of the battle. That's probably a very good thing. (laughs) God didn't need... Daniel to overcome the prince of Persia. And here in Revelation 12, he doesn't even send any of the believers. We're there. At this point in time, he sends no believer to do this. He simply sends Michael, the angel, and some of his comrades, and that's sufficient. I do hope that this kind of exposition will help you rest a little more on the sovereign control of God over that invisible world. In fact, I love love the truth that In Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is cast into the abyss for a thousand years while the millennial kingdom takes place on earth, we ruling with Christ. It only takes one angel, and that one is unnamed, to cast Satan into the abyss and lock him up for a thousand years. Even Satan... The great dragon will be temporarily confined by one ordinary anonymous angel who happens to have the command and will of sovereign God. It doesn't take thousands or millions to put the dragon in a cell. It takes just one unnamed angel. So let's not make too much of them. But let's not ignore him either. Here in chapter 12, it is Michael and the angels who defeat Satan and his demons and kick them out of heaven. Now that begs the second question. When does this take place? When does this battle take place? Now some would say it took place when Satan was expelled from his high position within the ranks of heaven. You remember Isaiah speaks of this? When he coveted the throne of God? But that wouldn't fit the context here because Satan is kicked out of heaven and then he battles Israel for three and a half years. Verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he then persecutes the woman who gave birth to the male child. And this unique period of time that we're told in verse 6 lasts for three and a half years. He's been battling Israel for time immemorial. Some would say this was a reference to Satan's defeat as Christ died on the cross and then rose again. Certainly that's the foundation of our victory, but Satan, since the cross, has had access to the throne of God where he accuses, we're told here in this text, the brethren, day and night. He's accusing us now. But now in this particular battle, what is happening at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is literally barred. Further entrance before the throne of God, and he is barred further opportunity to accuse the believer and rail against the throne of God. You remember in the book of Job where Satan would come before the presence of God and accuse Job's character? Job was not the first to be accused, and according to this text, he's not the last. 
Verse 10 tells us that he has done the same for every saint, for all the brethren. And he's been doing that even today while we've been in here worshiping. You are being accused before God right now. Satan and his invisible forces would shout accusations about you in the presence of God and then they will come and whisper in your ear accusations about God. They are unceasing, they are untiring in their tirade against God and against you, the redeemed. You know the expression, are your ears burning? What does that mean? Somebody's talking about you. Well, our ears really ought to be burning every moment of the day because we're being talked about. You're being spoken of in the heavenly court. And it will not be until midway through the tribulation. In fact, we've already been rescued by then. But those who are believing, even during those first three and a half years, and there will be millions of them, where God will eventually say at this moment in time, Michael, I have had enough of him doing that. Take care of him. And the war begins and it lasts for a moment or two. I have no idea how long. And Satan is barred entrance to accuse the believer before God. The prosecutor of all the redeemed is exiled to earth. He's banished from the court of heaven. He's disbarred from the court. But I want you to know, even as he's been doing this, and even today as he does it, I want you to hear the lingering sound, not of his accusations, but of the intercessions and the defense on our part by our Savior, who even now is interceding on our behalf. So Paul would write, who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And one day, yet future, revealed here for us in Revelation chapter 12, there will be this brief battle where Satan will be sent packing. That hissing serpent who has accused us, and rightly so, practically speaking, of being undeserving of God's grace and forgiveness, who even now could bring before the throne of God new, fresh, daily news of our failure and sin, who glories in our stumblings and our disobediences. And he says to God, have you not seen today? Do you know what happened yesterday? Is your store of grace not exhausted against that one and 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 that one? Is your justice dead? But our Lord stands with nail prints in his body, hands and feet, to remind the old snake without perhaps even a word, his wounds alone testify that we have already been judged and we are already 
forgiven. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Wesley would write his own lyrics of our redemption this way in that same hymn I quoted from earlier. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die? for me.